I work for a guy from the Middle East that we make a soup from his grandmother. It has five ingredients in it, and water is one. And you know, you're down to four ingredients. Us here, we would lose our minds if we had to cook like that. You give somebody five ingredients and water is one, the other ingredient is lentil. Then you got salt and pepper, that's two. And the last ingredient was the best olive oil. Oh my God. Last week, we began our conversation with Claude Ellis, executive chef and founder of BDF Catering, where we started discovering how connected good food is with good community. And that although the path to our dreams may be filled with twists and turns, with the right effort, we can get there. Now this week, Get ready to hear some of his great and innovative recipes and more as we continue our conversation with Claude in The Good of Good Food on Perpetual Good. It's the Perpetual Good Podcast with your host, Kenneth Hopkins. Join us as we discover the good things that are happening all around us and what we can do to bring even more good to our communities. Life is like a box of assorted chocolates. But what swirls in my head? Donuts from boxes. Both go with the concept. Never know what you'll get unless you were open. Yeah, I, I just, while you're talking, I just thought about that. You know, as I, my journey in culinary arts, I started understanding about fresh vegetables and fresh this and that. But remember when we grew up that a lot of times at our house, that's all we ate. Going out to eat was a, McDonald's was a luxury, you know. And if we brought McDonald's home, we had to share the fries, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was a small fry at that. So we got maybe one or two. <laughs> it was never a large fry. Never, never a large. Good God, are y'all the Jeffersons? Y'all them blew up in the projects? When I look back, you know, and I, and, and, I, and I always try to analyze that where did all this really start? Well, my stepmom, even my mom and them, that they would start preparing meals days ahead where they had to do the greens. And then, but when you're cooking everything from scratch, it takes time to do everything. But nowadays, when you buy this frozen, you put it in the microwave, add some water to it, and it's done. And, you know, you wonder why you eat. You wonder why you 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 wake up sometimes that you're still hungry. Uh, and just like you said with the pizza, the smallest slice, but the intense, the, the the flavorful from the pesto. I mean, you tasted the the way he tasted the vegetables, the way they interacted. The pizza, as you find out, you don't need a lot of cheese. Cheese is a compliment. I work for a guy from the Middle East that we make a soup from his grandmother. It has five ingredients in it, and water is one. And, you know, you're down to four ingredients. Us here, we would lose our minds if we had to cook like that. You give somebody five ingredients and water is one. The other ingredient is lentils. Then you got salt and pepper. That's two. And the last ingredient was the best olive oil. Oh, my God. Yes. Five ingredients in a soup. And this is one of my biggest sellers. It's a grandma recipe. Everybody's, I love the lentils. So when you take those ingredients and when you put it all together, you're like, my God, this is such so delicious. And you throw a little cumin in there. You're just jumping up and down. And that's all you need. 
So working for a guy from the Middle East, because they don't have all these preservatives, you have to know how to cook. That means you have to be able to cook from the freshest ingredients. They put nothing in it. Hummus. A lot of us want red pepper and all this stuff. We put all these ingredients. Hummus is very basic. But if you have the right olive oil, lemon juice, garlic, tahini, you know, know how to cook your fresh chickpeas, your dried chickpeas. Learn those techniques right there. Then you got something really good and healthy. You don't have to read the label on that. My model is that I produce what come out the earth instead of a can because I have to face people every day. And now with inflation, you're asking people to pay their hard-earned money. Come in here and pay you for something that you just open up a can. So I make them feel that this is why I do this. I know I'm going to affect your life. But when you come in here, guess what you don't have to worry about? I use all this, whatever this and that. I can look you in the eye and say, I produce what come out the earth. This soup right here, everything in it came out the earth. I didn't open up one can. And let me tell you how many people appreciate that. Because now we have, as we get older, we didn't know that the acid from orange juice affects something in your body. Food allergies. We didn't have food allergies growing up. I don't know where some of this gluten. That's a big one now. We grew up eating toast, whatever. I don't know what kind of sandwich. Why would they growing up a lettuce sandwich growing up? No, we didn't have all these Wonder allergies. Bread, right? Yes. <laughs> but it goes back to, you, like you said, we're getting all these allergies because food deserts. Well, we go now to the corner store to get a good meal. And most of it's packed with sugar. All these other ingredients, you know, they're man making it. As I was telling Victor that they can glue a steak together. <laughs> You can go to one restaurant, they take the leftover meat, they can put some food glue together, glue it together and shape it up and you've got a new steak and you won't know it. That's why some of the restaurants I go to, um, you'll be surprised. I go to a lot of the mom and pops. I want somebody that grew up and said, no, my mom, we had to wash the chicken first. We had to do this. I learned from her that I did it this way, you know. There's a lot of great chefs, man. There's a lot of them, but they're forcing their ideas of what food is on you. They're forcing it. They're telling you that squash used to be made this way. And they're putting all these ingredients that you can't even pronounce. We ate squash, salt, and pepper. Sometimes you could do that with a little butter. Saute it a little bit and throw some onions in there. You'd be surprised how much onions would give it flavor. You know, we get special, man. We had some leftover breadcrumbs, crumble them up, put it on top, add some sour cream, maybe some eggs in there. Some zucchini. Guess what? We baked that. We got a souffle. Casserole. Oh, my God. We done took something else to another level. I know some young people who would be listening to all of this and their mouth would be watering hearing all of this because they have a passion for cooking. They would love to be able to grow up and end up where you are. And I know that you've done some work with young people and actually training them and helping them. How did that come about? What's important to you in actually bringing up a new generation to understand the art of cooking and the importance of good food? I think a lot of it, um, because with anything we do that you want to be successful at, first thing, I always teach them that success is not easy. If you want to be an executive chef or be where I'm at, it's not going to be easy. I just happen to take a different way, a different route to get to where I'm at. Most kids, they... Your route looks like a roller coaster. Yes, it does. <laughs> Most kids will go to culinary school and then they come out and get a job at a place. I had to convince the chefs that this is what I wanted to do. They had no idea that I wanted to be passionate, but I remember when a chef told me, no, I don't want to hire you um, because I don't think this is what you want to do. You're going to be wasting my time. But he did give me one bit of advice. He said... 
if you do do this, he said, I want you to learn the financial side of it. And I didn't understand what he meant by then, right then. But he said, go in the trash can when they throw something away, the receipts, whatever. Mm-hmm. He go in there and take the receipt out of the trash can and, 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 and start adding up. How did they get to that number? And so I never forgot that. I was like, why did he tell me instead of learn about cooking? He told me learn the financial side. And as I started getting into the business, I started understanding about, oh, my God, you know, you got to purchase food. Just because you make a good dish, is it cost effective? So if it's cost effective, can we make money off of it? This is where I challenge all the cats coming out of culinary school. All those ideas look good, you want to do, but you come to a mom and pop, you want to put all these ideas on them, but you have no idea about cost. That plate cost. What it cost from the time we purchased it, preparing it, and what if they didn't like it? We made no money. They send it back to the kitchen because it's awful. Or you, they didn't like it. You made absolutely nothing off of that. Yeah. So once you tell them that, you have to be laser focused, know your flavors, you know, before you really want to jump out here, yeah. learn your craft. Mm-hmm. Just because you've been to culinary school, you can't cannot come out in two, three years and want to be an executive chef and think that you know your flavors. Mm-hmm. You learn every day in this business. As, so how long... From frying chicken yeah. to executive chef. How many years? Um, Roughly. Almost 20 years. I had to understand. I, I went through, like I said, I didn't go to culinary school, so I had to go another route. And that's working my way up. But I learned one time working for, I moved from Washington, D.C. to Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, my God. The language change. There's things here in Georgia that... You know, I didn't experience up north, even out west growing up. What you think is good is not all the time. You know, you have to understand the crowd that you're cooking for. Most because guys. The, the crowd in, in D.C. Yes. Is completely different. Different than Atlanta. Than, than Atlanta. Yes. They the like. Taste, the, the everything. look, everything is different. The, the different type of food that you would, you know, like. We don't eat a lot of sweet potatoes up north. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. I was the chef for Puff Daddy. Well, his restaurant up in New York put red pepper flakes in their collard greens. They fried their catfish in flour. By the time you get down to Atlanta, Georgia, catfish, put some cornmeal on that thing. You know what I mean? Put some cornmeal on it. Make that thing talk in the grease. Collard greens? We don't need all that spice, whatever. We, you putting a spice on collard greens. Let me tell you how they think about collard greens in the south. Remember, the word is called collard greens. For the last 10, 15, 20 years, we're buying these collard greens already pre-cut, which we grew up, we picked our own collard greens. Remember what we picked out the collard greens is the stem. People don't understand a stem is bitter. That's why you picked it out. But when you buy these pre-cut collard greens, they got all these stems in it. So now you're cooking collard greens and stems. So in order to counteract that bitter taste, you start adding all this other stuff to it. Sugar, brown sugar, red pepper flakes, you know, something to throw your taste buds off. But when you pick collard greens and get all those stems out and you're eating collard greens, the leaf, when you start adding all your other flavors to it, your chicken stocks or for you vegans out there, vegetable stock, you know, <laughs> you know, with a little quinoa in there maybe, but you start really tasting greens. And then you understand that when our grandma and them cooking, why they were so much different, they didn't use all them ingredients. The vinegar was because they understood about certain times of year, you have to give it a little extra flavor, baby, help soften them up. You know, 
that vinegar breaks down that leaf, makes them just taste so mmm. And they added a little fat. Fat is flavor in the culinary arts. There's nothing wrong with fat. I save every bit of fat, any kind of fat, chicken fat, pork fat. Once you get absorbed into this and you understand what culinary, as I go back to arts, I really understand the art part of it. What do we all have in common? You know, people at the house, Lou, I envy you, especially Ed. Victor, I know you cook, but you two are really into your food. Like, I can tell your passion. I can tell when you talk about it. I'm like, my mouth waters. <laughs> and, I, and I always send your text talking about, hey, I'm hiring a sous chef or somebody like that. And you guys don't because you guys will be the perfect person I would hire. You love what you do. But can you love what you do every day when they tell you some days your food tastes like crap? You know, they're not smiling. They done burnt up something that you really tried. They done dropped the dish. You know, can you smile every day like that? I, I strive for the pleasure that you guys have with not having the pressure on you to take care of X amount of people every day. So with that, getting back to the students that, that you teach. Yeah. Because that's an important thing. Because as you mentioned, I love to cook. I love creating things. And when it doesn't come out right, I am the worst person to be around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it's, it's supposed to be this, this way. Within, within variation, but it's supposed to come out in a very pleasing way. All of the art, you know, the, the artistry and the, the flavors and everything. And when it doesn't come out right, I tank, but <laughs> you can't do that. No. And your students can't do that either. No. So how do you, how do you teach them to push past that? Because that is a life skill. Being able yeah. to push past those areas of disappointment. Yeah. And the expectation to realize that the passion that you have and the goal that you have is much bigger than this one dish. How do you teach them to push past that? It goes to trial and error. But as sometimes with trial and error, you have to also understand that we go back to you have to be financially responsible. You know, you can't learn how to cook a steak and keep burning it up. You know, and then after three, four hundred dollars later, then you want me to pay you. But tonight you earned one hundred and fifty dollars, but you burnt up three hundred dollars worth of steaks. <sighs> so I think what a, a lot of times is that I teach you have to learn your craft. You have to study, watch, learn. That's why it's good to have a good mixture of people who've been in the business in your building and some new people, because I would teach that if you're making a sauce, when do you put the salt in. If you put too much salt in at the beginning, guess what? You can't fix it. You can't take salt out, but you can keep adding until you get it right. So one of the key of a lot of it, us growing up in our cultures, Latin and also African-American, that salt, it's in our blood. It's in our DNA that we learn how to, because we got the worst pieces of meat. We had to learn how to make anything taste good from the Hispanics to the blacks. It doesn't matter. But if we had salt, you just added the right amount of salt. It just enhances anything. So I start with something as, as minor as salt. Let me taste it. Let me taste it. No, your salt. I'm training your taste buds for salt, for seasonings. And so telling you when to add it in. Mm-hmm. So once you learn that you, you add a little bit in when you're cooking it, then you taste it at the end. Hey, then bring somebody else into it. Then somebody else. Oh, I need a little salt. It might then. Then you'll add a little bit more. It's good. It's good. A lot of times I teach people that if you haven't grown up eating good food, you really don't know what good food is. And so a lot of times these guys grow up. I don't care what culture you're in. 
if you didn't have good food in that culture, then you go to school, come out, and you think you know how to season. You don't because you never ate good food growing up. Yeah. A lot of us have grown up eating good food, and it goes back to the seasoning. And so it's easier for me to take somebody like you and get you straight than somebody that didn't grow up eating good food but went to school, think they know everything, and they put it together and just, you see them on TV all the time, bam, bam, whatever this and that. That bam, but how much salt is in that bam you're doing? So when people go to your restaurant and say, it, was, it, was, it looked good, but it was salty. Because cooking ain't bam, bam, throw this on and bam. You know, it's, it's, it's understanding the flares, layering them. You know, sometimes you cook a dish, you got to saute the vegetables first before you add anything to it. Because as a cook, they won't be cooked. They won't be done. So at the end, you're like, this tastes good, but why is this crunchy? It shouldn't be crunchy. So you have to teach them how to saute them a little bit, soften them up a little bit. Then you add everything else to it. When you're using fresh basil compared to dry basil. So you learn in culinary arts, you put dry stuff has to go in at the beginning. Because as a cook, it releases the flavor. Fresh at the end, the flavor comes right out. So you want to put your fresh herbs at the end. That's why you see at the end, they'll put it in rice and stir it up. And you're like, oh my God, it's so flavorful. Put it again at the beginning and all the flavor cooks out. And when I work with a master chef that taught 12 years at CIA in Napa Valley, a lot of things he told me that he was from Germany. And so potatoes, they know how to cook potatoes. He said, when you work with me, a lot of things, I'm going to change your mind about certain things you do. And I'll go back to potatoes. Well, we make mashed potatoes. We put them in a pot of water. We cut them up and do this and that. He doesn't do them. He puts them in the oven with the skin on, salt the skin, you baking potatoes. 50 minutes later, you take them out of the oven, you cut a slit in them, you take the meat and you crumble them out. Burning your hands, I, 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 you squeezing all that potato out. Then you start adding your cream. You got to heat your cream up. You got to heat your butter up. Salt and pepper ready. You stir those in the potatoes. All of a sudden now you're going, oh my God, the flavor from the potatoes. You finally tasting real mashed potatoes. Because we learned in culinary arts, we didn't know anything you add water to dilutes. Anything water touches diluted. So can you imagine the flavor that you lose when you're boiling your potatoes and coming back to make mashed potatoes? But how many of us would take that chance? How many potatoes that are hot like that, that you would do it for the whole day and don't care? Well, when you work for a master chef and he's that passionate about it, guess what? I hear what you're saying. You're going to burn your hands. But I want this food quality so superb that these guys know that we put our effort into it. And guess what? This was at a sports bar. At a sports bar. We're not talking about a fine dining restaurant. I couldn't wait to work with this guy. I had a master chef at a sports bar. I mean, we're doing like the craziest stuff because he cared so much about food. The quality is going to be through the roof. I never forgot. We did chicken wings. He said, no, we're going to do with the poison. We're going to do these little tiny chickens, like the little tiny birds. I'm like, what are you doing? It's chicken wings they want. Guess what? We did them little tiny birds and um, people loved it. They loved the effort that we put into it. Calamari, everybody cuts it real big. So you're just chewing and chewing. Guess what he said? We're going to do shaved calamari. Shave, well, look how thin it is. But when you fry it up, oh my God, you're just chewing just a little bit. Now you get the flavor of everything. You're not chewing all day. I love it. Let's keep learning something else. I was actually getting paid to be in class every day. The new chefs now pay to be in class, <laughs> you know, 40, 50,000. I saved a lot of money, but there's something that they didn't, they didn't understand. And we learned this. I remember this. 
we won a championship. That probably was the best thing that we ever did in track was our junior year that we won that division in, champion, in track and field. But understanding being on a championship team, understanding the work that it takes to get there. And we worked, we were together the year before and we worked the tickets. I remember running the year before I would go up in the mountains we run and I would hide behind the trees while y'all ran and take the shortcut through the path and act like I just caught up to you guys and I was fresh as I don't know what. But the next year, guess what? I ran up the hill. I didn't cut. And I watched how everybody just worked harder. We challenged each other. And then we started tasting that championship. So when you take that level that you already experienced something like that and you put it in the kitchen, but it came because we had to work. And so me as a chef, before I even worked with a master chef, I read the culinary book of CIA. I didn't have 40, 50,000 to go to school, but what I did, I got a book from there and I read it and I started understanding great education. Thank you, teachers at Samuel and Mill Peters. I had a very good education. I could read. I can understand everything they taught to me, the geometry, the algebra. I didn't know that food, you use all that stuff, shapes. You use everything that I, I thought about in school. It came back to me in this field, but it goes back to I'm a student of what I do. And now I have to tell other people that there's a lot of guys that don't go to culinary school that came up through the business like me. Now I can help them further their career by giving them some pointers that will help them not spin their wheels. Understand and make up right your now, right now, if you want to be chef, or if you want to be a cook. And if you want to be chef, these are things that you can do. You know, one thing, don't wear your feelings on your sleeve because I'm going to tell you some things you're not going to like one day. And guess what? The people that you serve are going to tell you something. Matter of fact, your family is going to tell you some things that they don't like. You're going to be in there. You're going to be indebted to this business for a while. You're going to spend 10, 12, 14, 16, 18 hours a day, whether you like it or not. That's if you want to be good at it. If you want to be average, go to work eight hours. Guess what? You'll get a check. You know, your money will stay the same for 10 years. You know, you won't grow any. And, you know, you wonder why everybody's passing you up. A couple of things that that I heard out of this. I heard a lot out of this. I even heard some recipes that I'm going to try out of this. But the connection between being passionate as a chef and community is so tied together. You cannot be passionate about good food and not be passionate about the people around you. In order to actually develop as a chef, you need people around you. Absolutely. You need to be able to have somebody else judge, taste, analyze what you're doing so that, and it's not even so much so that you can improve. That's a part of it. Yeah. Because the, the level of blind spot that I may have in my own cooking, I don't know. And so to be able to, to, to round all of that out, mm-hmm. it has to be public and it has to be part of community. The other part of that community is the level of generation to generation where what we present comes from our past. It comes from our ancestors. It comes from our families and the the people around us. And so a lot of the things that you talked about, a lot of the things that you have brought to the table for your kitchens, for your students, for all of the people that have come up under you, came from your grandmother. Absolutely. Came from your uh, from your stepmom. Came from being able to watch and seeing that this stuff doesn't come out of a can. It comes out of the things that they learned from their mothers and grandmothers, and all the way down the line. Right. And so, 
one of the things that happens when food becomes important to us, it's not just, I'm hungry, so I'm going to go get some some fast food or some junk food or something to what I'm thinking is curb my appetite, which it's really not curbing my appetite. It's actually causing my body to go into, Absolutely. into fits. But when we start thinking about the quality of food and the experience of that, we can actually tie it all the way back and then we can tie it all the way forward. One of the things that Imani, who's here taking pictures and and, uh, experiencing all of this, and she's a, a part of this whole production, one of the things we talk about is not only our history of being in the kitchen together, but it's looking forward to the next time that we can be in the kitchen together. There's something about having positive experiences that come from that. Just that experience can be passed on, whether it's your own family, whether it's students, or whether it's just the people in your life that they can share. I mean, you mentioned the fact that I think we do, I think we do it because of you, because we, I mean, we did it on Facebook and everything, but we started sharing the pictures of things that we would create because we knew that you were a chef. And just that level of sharing to say, Hey, I, I was able to create this and this actually came out well. And then we get the experience of, of all of that. And so, so true. yeah, absolutely. And so good food is not just about paying a bunch of money and getting some, absolutely. you know, you know, it has nothing to do with that. You can actually have good food that doesn't cost a lot, Yeah, but there is an experience of life that actually comes with that. So let's just bring this back around You've actually created a company where you are you're you're selling soups, and I'm not sure what else you're doing. But talk a little bit about that. Can can I get it online? Can I? No, I want to taste this stuff. No, you you can't. You can't get it online. But I guess for the last two years during COVID, Mm -hmm. I remember when COVID first started. I was I'm at the Federal Building downtown. I'm the corporate chef of Food Wine Solutions. Um, We went from I remember the final four, uh, the, 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 we had all the tournaments, everything, the catering. And when COVID first came out, we walked up to the catering board and we pulled down $78,000 worth of business, just walked out the door. We're, we're directly where we see the stadium in, a, in Atlanta, the, the football stadium, everything, everything there went away. What do you call it? The SEC championships, the final four, we lost everything. And to sit there at that time that and then all the employees stopped because there was nobody. We're in a food service. We don't deal with outside people. They didn't have the government. They closed it down. So, but yet there was still the security guards there. And so when we went there. Um, I didn't know what to do, but we had that lot of food. And so one day I just said, you know, I got an extensive arsenal of soups. And I said, I'm just going to make the guys in the building make them some soup. Yeah, we were doing a nice. photo shoot. Well, I made, um, I just went all over the gamut. I did a vegan soup. Um, some potato soup, carrot ginger, a beef Brunswick. The one they really liked was the Thai curry. Uh, which the Thai curry is a combination. <laughs> it's a soup I use. This is a soup I can brag because everything does come out the earth in that soup. You have mm-hmm. fresh ginger, lemongrass. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're in Georgia. 
they don't know about lemongrass. What lemongrass can you roll it up? <laughs> How does it smoke? You know? So they like, does it taste like lemon when it's burning? No, dude. And this is where my stepmom came in. You take that lemongrass, most people just cut it. No, I take a little mallet and I bang it. I release all the aromatics and then I cut it up. And that's just how she did it. And that's just the way to do it. And you saute it and release some more. So you have fresh ginger, garlic, then you have fresh mushrooms, mirepoix, which is onion, celery, and carrots, lime juice, fresh cilantro. I mean, everything in the soup, wow. coconut milk. It's crazy flavors. Then you have your curry paste. Oh, my God. What, what can I do to you? I need to come out to Atlanta, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds amazing. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. But... You know, a lot of this is just from my journey. Is it your mm-hmm. best? Is that your best? Yeah. It's one of the highly uh, requested soup. Yeah. But as I said, when you take roasted corn chowder, and when I say roasted, I take the, the corn, I cut it off the cob. You roast it in the hustle. It kind of steams it up a little bit. And some of it I take off and get a little char in there. But it's just how you just use the fresh ingredients I did. And you'll notice something when I cook all my soups, the ingredients in it are not overcooked. You can still get the nutrients and the, and the flavors out of it. And so then when you go back to where we grew up, grandma, mom and them and aunties and people in the neighborhood didn't have all these as these chefs use all these ingredients. We had to use the basic. And it goes back to a lot of times salt and pepper. Those are your main ingredients. Water, a good chicken stock. And the right kind of pepper. The right kind of peppers is my Latinos would need, you know, <laughs> but I learned a lot from studying their culture, how they'll dry their peppers, grind them up, use a chipotle, how much you can do that. I put chipotle in pickle juice, add a little mayonnaise to it. Oh my God, guess what you got? A chipotle aioli, but the flavors from the chipotle, the smokiness, the pickle juice, the little acid in it, the sweetness. But this is, this is where growing up when nobody's in the house and you have to throw a meal together. And you learn how to take this and throw this together and throw this together. And you're just like, like so, my mom's did. absolutely. <laughs> so when you can think about these things when you're in the kitchen and then I, sometimes, like you said, even though you guys might say you send your stuff to me for approval, it tells me that you guys really love what you do. Because mm-hmm. I can tell that the terminology, you, you're telling me you're searing. I'm questioning Ed how he does stuff. He's like, I do it this way. I do it this way. It's like. Hey, Neho, can you, you want a sous chef job when you send me stuff and you're talking to me? These guys know this stuff. You know what the truth is about that? I probably send you about 10% of the things I take pictures of intending to send to you. Yeah. I mean to. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's how you're in my heart when I'm cooking. I think about you when I'm cooking. I think about you. I when appreciate I'm, Every that. time I cook. Not because I'm trying to impress you or anything. I just want to share it with you. I think that's the main point. Good food brings people together. It brings communities together. It's all about sharing. And during this time of year, there's so much opportunity for people to be able to sit down together and to have good meals. And with all of the, the craziness and the pressures and everything like that, sometimes we can even forget. It's just like, oh yeah, we have to, we have to eat really quick because we have to do all the shopping and everything like that. But when we can actually think back about the fact that we are blessed to be able to do this. Even if it's not a lot, it doesn't need to be a lot. It just needs to be the experience of being able to share that. And I may not be able to, I've never cooked a a turkey in my life. I I don't plan on doing it anytime soon. (laughs) But there are some things that I can share with my family, that I can share with my friends. 
And whether they actually taste it or they see it online, they can have some level of experience about it. And so there's so much that just goes into the importance of good food and being able to appreciate that. Claude, I want to thank you for just talking about your journey, talking about the passion that you have. And so much of what you have said is, I, I want to call it new information, how you've gotten to where you are and just some of the things that you focus on in the artistry of food. I hadn't thought about the full level of artistry and the beauty of it. And yet when I think back about it on some of the things that I've sent you, it's like, okay, no, it has to be presented in a certain way. (laughs) But it helps me to be able to communicate even more and to be able to share that experience with you, with my family. And we talked a little bit about food deserts and just some of the communities that, that don't have, that don't have a lot. And this is just a, an encouragement for those who, who don't have a lot that you can think back to, uh, think back to your ancestors, to your, your mothers and fathers, your grandmothers and grandfathers, and what they were able to do with a little bit and realize that even though the government or the community may not be trying to provide it, but you have the ability to use your own passion and your own creativity to actually create healthy meals for yourself, your family, and for your community. Again, Claude, Vic, and thank you for taking the time for uh, for some of the laughs that we've had together and that we'll continue to have and for some of the sharing that we'll have going forward. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. This has been part two of our conversation with Claude Ellis executive chef and founder of BDF Catering, with help from our good friends, Ed Gill and Victor Woodleaf, on the good of good food. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Claude as much as we did, and that you were inspired to continue to pursue your dreams. Make sure you are following Perpetual Good to get informed of new episodes of inspirational people making a difference in their community. The theme music for Perpetual Good Wild and Windy by Bled John. Additional music, Soaring Above the Waves by Rolick Music. Kitchen sounds were provided by Sounds to Sleep To. Marketing and social media management is by Imani Tahira. And again, thanks, special thanks to Dr. Victor Woodleaf for providing the venue for our conversation. Now leave you with this quote from author Laura Esquivel. Cooking is one of the strongest ceremonies for life. When recipes are put together, the kitchen is a chemical laboratory involving air, fire, water, and earth. This is what gives value to humans and elevates their spiritual qualities. Thank you again for spending time with us here on Perpetual Good, and we'll talk to you next week.